0: back to the maroon weekly it is week 10 of spring quarter coming up on the end of quarter and finals week here as always i'm austin and in the studio today is literally no one else and also it's not in the studio today it is in my dorm room yep that's right the rest of the maroon weekly team ditched me so it's just lonely myself here in my dormitory with nothing but a microphone we will see how this turns out so in this episode we're changing up the format a little bit it is going to be a super bonanza of our favorite segments over the whole year. The Weekly team wanted to highlight what we think is the best content we put out all year, the biggest news stories, the best things that you may have missed, and so you got to, that way you can catch up on them. As a result, we're going to go through the news, events, tech fact, all that fun stuff at the beginning of the episode. And then after that, I will be telling you the segments included in this episode and giving you guys a rough timestamp of when they are so that you can skip ahead and only listen to the segments you wanna listen to. One more thing before we get into the news. I know I speak for the whole Maroon Weekly team and the entire podcast division. When I say thank you guys so much for listening, you guys are the reason we do what we do. And if we had no listeners, we would have no reason to make this amazing content. So we first off want to most importantly, thank you, our listeners for making this all possible. As well, we'd like to thank an anonymous donation to the Chicago Maroon that allowed the Maroon to purchase multimedia equipment for both the podcast and video divisions. So you're hearing this from our brand new microphone, which is exciting. But without further ado, let's get right into the news. First off, the city of Chicago has implemented a strategic decision support center in district two of the city, which is the district that encompasses campus and Hyde Park. For those of you that may not know what a Strategic Decision Support Center is, they're kind of like the brain of these new initiatives put out by the city, such as shot spotter technology, as well as predictive policing. A couple weeks ago, I actually sat down with a member of the UChicago Crime Lab to talk about their role in helping the city research the effectiveness of these policies. But all this means is that at the police station in the 2nd District, there's now a room with a ton of computers, big computer screens, looks kind of like a sci-fi film and it's pulling data 24 seven from all different sources to predict where crime might be occurring so they can preemptively go there to deter any crime. Second on the list, the city council approved a $175 million fund to fund projects related to the construction of the Obama Presidential Center. Specifically, this money is going towards the closure of Cornell Drive as well as the widening of Lakeshore Drive and Stonely Island Avenue. As well, the parkland necessitated for the Obama Presidential Center shifted hands from the city itself to the Chicago Park District such that the Obama Presidential Center will be able to lease the land from the Chicago Park District. It is important to note that the lease is actually only a symbolic lease and it's only for a dollar. First up in the news this week, the university has removed the part-time status for seniors but is now offering fifth classes at no extra cost to students. A university spokesperson said this decision is based on the college's interest to support students towards on-time graduation. Students must still petition to the Dean of Students to take a fifth course, but the additional 4,500 per quarter will be gone. Next up, some awesome events. Things are starting to wind down for the end of the year, but Friday, June 1st at 12 p.m., the Promontory, will present a never-before-seen gathering of 10 globally renowned musicians for a celebratory performance of improvisational, intuitive music. Tickets are $10 with your UCID. Later that same day, Friday, June 1st at 7.30 p.m. at Logan, the acapella group Voices in Your Head featuring our own Natalia Rodriguez will be having their 20th anniversary concert. Tickets are $10 with your UCID. As always, check out all of these events and more at chicagomarooncom slash events. Time for my favorite part, the weekly tech fact. This week's tech fact is about Elon Musk. This week had to be one of the strangest weeks in recent memories for Musk. The week started with him convincing his current girlfriend and pop star, Grimes, to change her name to the symbol for the speed of light. After that, a couple of days after, Elon Musk had a press conference for his boring company, which is a company that is currently planning to build a large tunnel under LA to relieve traffic. That went well, there was a ton of hype at that event. The craziest part of Musk's week, however, was this past Wednesday when he went on a Trump-esque tirade against modern media. It all started out when he tweeted, and I quote, The holier-than-thou hypocrisy of big media companies who lay claim to the truth but publish only enough to sugarcoat the lie is why the public no longer respects them. He goes on to criticize several journalists that respond to him, and he follows this up with a post that says, problem is journals are under constant pressure to get max clicks and earn advertising dollars or get fired. Tricky situation as Tesla does not advertise but fossil fuel companies and gas and diesel car companies are among the world's biggest advertisers. All of this comes on the eve of a lot of bad press for Tesla. Their Model 3s continue to miss targets and as well there's been issues of quality concerns. And within the past two weeks, Consumer Reports had their review of the Tesla Model 3, and so they could not recommend it because of poor braking performance. As a result, it appears that Musk's tirade is in direct relation to the series of bad PR against Tesla. Specifically, Musk seems to be suggesting that because Tesla doesn't pay advertising dollars at the rates of fossil fuel companies and gas diesel car companies, that these media outlets are less inclined to post positive news of Tesla. This indicates that it's not. this is more than just some media tirade from Musk. Tesla is a company that is dependent on positive press. They spend very little on advertising dollars and are bleeding money fast. So any bad press is essentially an existential issue for Tesla at this point as they're scrambling to as they scramble to get more funding. goes to our sister pod, The Quadcast. Their past couple episodes have been incredible, and it doesn't stop this week when host Natalia Rodriguez sits down with members of Moda to discuss design and fashion culture on campus. So check that out on our SoundCloud and Apple podcast page. Next up is the supercut of our favorite segments of the year. We're going to start off with a segment on the Steve Bannon invitation when Miles sat down with Samantha Isla Driscoll an editor for the pro-market blog at the Stiegler Center, which is the center within Booth ran by Luigi Zingales. He sat down to talk to her about her conscientious objections on working anything related to the Bannon invitation at Booth and how the university responded to that. After that, we will air a segment where Miles sat down with Pete Greve, editor at the Chicago Maroon, to discuss the Charles Thomas shooting in a piece which highlight the events of that night from Pete Grieve, who is a reporter at the scene. After that, we will air the interview between our very own Grace Houck and Chase Harrison discussing the Zimmer Boyer free speech forum that happened earlier this year. And finally, we'll end with the piece made by our very own Quinn Kane called Sounds of Scav. First will be the piece with Sam eiler Driscoll and Miles. Then at around 26 minutes into the podcast, we will have the piece with Pete Greave and Miles Burton. Next, the piece on the Zimmer Boyer Forum will be at around 34 minutes and 30 seconds. And finally, the sounds of scab will be at 44 minutes and 30 seconds into the pod.
1: So I'm here today with Sam eiler Last we heard from you, or was in the immediate aftermath of the bandit invitation announcement. And when that happened, as I recall, you resigned some of your responsibilities, but not all of them? Could you maybe remind us what...
2: I, I stepped off an editorial board, but I... Well, I withdrew from voting rights on the editorial board. Essentially on grounds that without free speech I wasn't able to properly debate issues like whether or not our center should be giving a platform to somebody like Manon, um without fear of retaliation.
1: And in recent, in, in about the last week or so, you had some meetings with Human Resources about that?
2: So, uh, obviously all staff have six-month probationary period. Um, they tried to extend the probationary period because they said that they haven't been able to properly assess my fit for the role. Um, however, when I went to the meeting and they... And I said, but, you know, well, I'm still not going to work on Bannon things. And they said, fine, and I'm still not going to, like, vote on the editorial board. And they said, fine, and so I was like, well, you know, what's the issue? But I think what happened is after our negotiation, I'm not sure entirely why my boss, Luigi, Established a new procedure whereby he needed to approve all content. I guess because he like maybe they were worried about me going rogue Maybe they wanted to like I made a specific point during the negotiation of saying that he needed to be The person who was clearly the editor-in-chief of ProMarket if he was rather than trying to use other people as like puppets for his Agenda that was important to me. So I guess he thought in the spirit of the negotiations He should have final sign-off on all content but that turned out not to be workable because he's too busy, and our site traffic was plummeting. So he rescinded that order. But that was not part of my that wasn't part of my package, and so essentially that's the only main change to my job duties besides all of the other exclusions like not working on the band and things that they said still stand. And also in my negotiation, they granted my speech rights, and they agreed that they would take up the issue of staff speech rights with the administration Um, initially it was, the plan was Luigi and I would go, then when I approached Luigi about it, he said oh I've already done it but staff, I mean so effectively by saying we want you to reverse the, the the negotiation they were rescinding my speech rights again and so I'm like well I'm not Firstly, I'm not, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I never did anything wrong. They did everything. They're the people who started this, essentially. Like, I behaved absolutely professionally at every step of the way. And I don't accept any kind of accusation that I deserve this probation. You know, I've been doing my job essentially exactly the same way the whole time I've been here. And I... It like, unless, I mean, unless they have grounds to show that I, like, am deserving of probationary treatment, then I don't understand why this is happening. And so I told them, like, I don't accept the probation. I want a secure contract. And they said they're very busy. They needed to get back to me. And I assume they are pretty busy right now. So I, I mean, the fact is that the University of Chicago is raking in billions of dollars on grounds that it is the epitome of free expression and there's not free expression at UChicago. There is free expression for some people at UChicago. And there is a logic to the people who get free expression here as well. You know, Luigi's banning gambit managed to secure this university, one of the biggest donations that it ever got.
1: When you say that, which donation are you referring to? The to the
2: Economics Department. You know, specifically on grounds of its freedom of expression policy. Like the University of Chicago, like, I mean, used, I don't know if anybody else saw this report in Slate, that right-wing think tanks are being encouraged not to, do, to donate to any other universities because of the free speech policies that they're pursuing. And so it's it's, like, it's clear what's going on here, right? Like, they, Luigi got the university their, their giant donation. Ben is not even coming. So he doesn't even, I mean, Luigi's not interested in Ben and coming, from what I can tell. He doesn't talk to me. We obviously don't talk about this anymore, but Ben is not coming, but he didn't need to come for the, for the media spectacle to have its effect. And now they're trying to squeeze out the people who ever dared to say anything against it.
1: I know we haven't really heard anything about the banning invitation since it got announced that he had been invited. You don't think it's gonna actually occur? No. Why do you think that is?
2: Honestly, I think that my boss did not realize how great the danger would be that he would be seen as a Nazi sympathizer, particularly since Bannon's gone to Europe and like said, like, let them call us racist, let them call us xenophobes, wear it a badge of honor, you know. That wasn't really his plan. He definitely did the administration the favor that they needed. And I think his his he's in damage control mode right now. And, I mean, better for him if he doesn't actually have to debate the merits of white nationalism with Bannon. Because I don't really think that he... I'm not really sure that he ever meant to, you know, like, he's But I mean, Luigi has no preparation, intellectual preparation, for dealing with the issue of white nationalism. That is not what he works on. So, like, he's not the person to do, to have that fight if it was ever intended. And I think that the fact that they're, the way that they've handled the opposition shows that also that. They never actually he never took seriously the, the premise that he's gonna invite Bannon in here and like give him a dressing down and show that neo Nazism is not sustainable or not logical. It that was that that obviously was a pretext. So he wants it done and they want to I mean I'm not sure if they wanted to fire me or if they do want to fire me. I think that they just wanted to make clear that I couldn't have that independent, like be independent minded in my work. I I think it was like a, an attempt to just get me under their thumb and make me scared a little bit and, but I, I can't rule out the fact that they were planning to just use that three months to try to find somebody to fill my job who they know will just do whatever they want and so if it's, if I'm just gonna like essentially give back my speech rights and not know if I've got a job, it's not worth it and so. That that was what the calculation was on my side. So
1: you're making a connection, as I understand it, between Luigi inviting Steve Bannon and this large donation going to the econ department. Have you seen any evidence in your position that there was some kind of you know no. tacit agreement there? Or?
2: No, I don't have access to those that information. I'm I'm, I'm basing that on the words of Ken Griffin gotcha. specifically. Like that's the one thing that he called attention to.
1: Your original six-month probationary period, that's a standard yeah. contractual obligation. Yeah. The additional three months is sort of a punitive measure?
2: They, they didn't say you're being punished, but I am being punished because that's three more months of precarity and not...
1: Yeah. And your position and, isn't, and isn't guaranteed fact, after those three months?
2: No. I mean, my is not guaranteed at all, ever, but it would be, I would be entitled, for instance, to unemployment protections if they give me, if they give me a a secure contract, and then we're just like, okay, sorry, bye. I would have more protections. And I just, I, 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 they're, they're toying with me. And also they added language to the, like, updated job description to essentially expand their managerial discretion, and... I told Pete this, that like the new sheet that they gave me said something about one of the metrics of my performance is my ability to adhere to Stigler Center Values. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, there's no description of these things. So essentially, they were giving themselves, they were expanding their room for managerial discretion in a way that to me looked like they're trying to find some grounds to fire me. Like, they're trying to invent a way to find grounds to fire me, no matter how meticulously I do my job. So, I'm not going to play ball with these people like this. It's not cool. (laughs) Like, none of it's cool. (laughs) Like, the whole thing has been a disaster from my perspective. So, and very, very personally exhausting.
1: Do you sympathize at all with other groups on campus who don't feel as if their right to expression is honored by the administration. So I'm thinking of the unionization efforts and things like that. Yeah,
2: and I definitely would draw, I mean, from my perspective, unionization is a speech, right? And freedom of association is a speech, right? And I think that the logic of this free speech absolutism that's being propounded, where there's clear exceptions, like graduate students and staff and the sorts of people who are being covered under this elaborate the provost statement are not people who are coming here arguing for you know reparations there are there are people who are coming here essentially arguing for ideologies that serve big money you know and this it you know it it's that, there is ideological content to this freedom of this fake freedom of expression pl- policy. It doesn't apply equally. Certainly doesn't aff- I mean, certainly doesn't apply to like controversial left wing terrorists, for instance. It would not. We would never have that conversation about an Islamist who comes here and is like preaching jihad in the United States. Has that, 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 that happened in Chicago? I don't know. Maybe not. Since I've been here, it's certainly not happened. I mean, we got Cornell West.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned that, as part of your negotiation, Professor Zingali's had agreed to work with you to talk to the administration about expanding free expression for employees of the university, and you seem to indicate that that hadn't gone anywhere.
2: Well, so my the negotiation, it I I asked if they would consider a one-off sort of. Blanket conscientious objection, exclusion under this particular case just because, not because I think that it should only be in this particular case just because I was like we gotta start the conversation somewhere and not even for the whole university just at Booth because we have a separate dean and well, I mean, there's deans of all the colleges or whatever but that's the place where I know that Luigi has influence and I wanted to do this with him and I, I mean, if it happened he says it happened because I asked him and he said that they had the meeting he said that the university is concerned about setting that precedent and I was like well if the university freedom of expression policy is a fiat policy which it is it's not like grounded in the constitution none of the university of chicago's freedom of expression policies have anything to do with the constitution and you can see that in various different ways but it's guaranteed by fiat and so they can by fiat also guarantee this conscientious objection exclusion during the ban in order, and even if they even if it sets the precedent, they can reverse it because it's by fiat. You know, like they are making this up as they go along, and they have that power, and they're couching it in constitutionalist language so that they can orient it inside these large debates that are happening across the country. But it's not I, the, the, the there is nothing whatsoever in the constitution that would indicate that a person's speech rights are dependent on having an invitation from a gatekeeper, for instance. And you'll, if you saw what Zimmer said in his panel thing the other day, Bannon is, has a right to speak if he's still invited. The Constitution doesn't contemplate someone's speech rights being dependent on an invitation and if that were, if, if, if this were a constitutional issue, then Jeff Stone would have violated also Richard Spencer's speech rights by... Denying his request for him to come and speak here, you know, there's, there's no, there's nothing in the Constitution that requires there to be some sort of intellectual intermediary between a person and a platform. That's that's the basic point in the first place. Is the Constitution is not about platform, it's about speech rights. And nobody, not me, not any of the protesters here, is trying to keep Bannon from going and talking to a wall. They're trying to keep him from getting on a stage and being imbued with all of the intellectual capital that comes along with being at the University of Chicago. And that's the thing that we're objecting to. It doesn't, like, none of the things that Zimmer's saying make sense if you don't accept the distinction between speech and a platform. You know, like, you can't... I mean, Bannon is free to speak. Like, he's free to speak in this country no matter what. He doesn't have to be given the legitimacy of a platform by anyone. There's, you know, because if one person If it is implied in the Constitution that the right to free free speech implies a right to a platform, every single person needs to have the right to the same platform. And that's clearly not possible. It's not workable. So, anyway. Sorry.
1: Um, Just maybe to wrap up, (laughs) I I know in university policies and language, the rights of, as I understand it, students and faculty are fairly enumerated with respect to free speech. Is there any kind of enumeration that you know of of the rights to free expression for employees of the university other than than faculty? No. uh,
2: After my negotiation, I saw that they issued a statement saying, staff has free speech, but any change to their job description has to be covered by, or, like, negotiated with their employer. Which, I mean, I think it was just, like, a sort of, like, let's change the subject kind of thing, because speech speech rights include speech acts, and this is a very complex, I mean, it's like, I, I don't know if it's been decided, this case in the Supreme Court, about the people who don't want to make the gay wedding cakes or whatever, you know, action is covered under speech, and so this is, that was sort of like a, they were sort of like punting, and with that statement at all, um, because for instance, they were like, as long as you're, they, they told me, as long as you're not engaging in, you know, as long as you're doing your job, you can protest, but I was in an open Twitter war with Luigi, right, like after this happened, and I say Twitter war, I was tweeting constantly at him and also about this, and if I tweet about this when I'm sitting at my desk, does that mean that I'm violating the terms of free expression? Like Like, it was, there were clearly a whole lot of things, and there's tons of implications, and Uh, this is obviously clear to other staff because other staff have told me that they can't say anything because they're afraid. They've specifically said, I need this job. So, I mean, I need this job, but I was the person who happened to be the first one down the line. And so it was more immediate in my case, but you know, so to say, Oh, staff have freedom of expression. However, you can be fired if we see you as not being faithful to the values of the Stigler Center of Chicago Booth, like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I don't think they, don't, they know what that means. It's something that they've invented. So there's the for practical purposes. Staff do not have freedom of expression. So be careful. But you're not staff, are you? You're a student, I am, right? I am not staff. Okay.
1: Thank you for uh, chatting with me.
2: Thank you very much for listening.
1: I sat down with Pete Grieve, one of the editors in chief of the Maroon, to talk about our coverage so far of the shooting that happened last week. I'm here in the Maroon's office today, and I'm joined by Pete Grieve, the editor of the paper. He's here to walk us through the Maroon's reporting so far of the shooting that happened last Tuesday on April 3rd. So Pete, the shooting actually happened on Tuesday night. How did you end up hearing about that, and how did you get all the details lined up so quickly after the event?
3: I have to give credit to uh, my colleague, Leah Harris, who's a news editor of the Maroon. She uh, was sent a video that's mostly just darkness, so it's, it's it's audio more than anything, but it's of a gunshot, and, you know, from that video we knew the approximate location, and we knew there was a shooting, and that was about it. So we didn't know at that point who had fired the shot, if it was police or someone else, we didn't know a student was shot, but, you know, a shooting close to campus, it's, it's something the Maroon's usually going to look into, so... You know, from there we uh, took a look at Twitter, didn't see much on, you know, there's a bunch of reporters who tweet things out from police scanners and uh, we didn't immediately see anything. We went to the scene. We sent an email to the Chicago Police Department's Office of News Affairs and they're, they're very responsive so you get a a quick email back from them and they said, uh, UCPD officer involved shooting when they gave the location which is uh, the alley between between Woodlawn and Kimbark. Um, on the 5300 block, so just south of 53rd Street. And they said there was an officer involved in the they didn't even clarify if an officer had been shot or if if an officer fired the shot. So we knew that. When I I, I went to the scene, police had set up tape. This was probably around midnight. And I I, I approached the tape, because usually, you know, in a situation like this, you can sort of walk up to where they have the barricade. But pretty immediately once I got there, uh, you know, I was told I needed to leave, so... That gave me the impression that you know they were sort of worried about some sort of active situation. Um, the, I was talking to an officer, and he said, "You know, usually you can go right up to the tape, but um, there was some sort of higher up who was on the scene. I don't, I, I don't know her exact title, maybe like a district commander or something like that." Um, and she'd sh- shouted like, "Get him the fuck out of there!" Um, so uh, uh, this officer like pushed me back, and and uh, you know pushed me into the block. So there wasn't really anything I could see but soon thereafter, we got an email from the university's news office, and they were just saying at this time, you know, this was 1 a.m., I think, they said, we have no information. Still trying to figure it out. Around 3 a.m., they confirmed that UCP officers, or UCP officer fired a shot at a male. Didn't say it was a student at that point, but we already had a story up, so we had a story up around 2 a.m. that there was an officer involved shooting, and once that story published, I got a direct message on Twitter from someone who was close friends of the victim and he said, you know, it was a student and called him up, um, we talked, got some information. At that point we knew in, in the words of the source that it was a, a manic episode suggesting that it was sort of a mental health, you know, related incident. He said, you know, there, um, the student was carrying a metal bar when he was shot breaking windows and then obviously body body cam video was released, uh, I guess, the next day. So.
1: So in that, did the university published that themselves or did they first send it to the
3: Maroon? The body cam? Yeah. They sent it, well I got an email, it was, there was an email to me and to Lee Harris, the other reporter who wrote the story, but my understanding is they sent it to sort of all sorts of media outlets. I don't have a full list, but okay. you know, within minutes, I got, we weren't the first to get the video up because we're not as fast with video, but mm-hmm. within a half hour we had it up and probably other outlets had it up even a few minutes before us.
1: Do you know why the university didn't publish it on their own? They sent it to the media first?
3: No, I, I don't know why. We did know that was going to happen. They they had said, I guess it was the email from Zimmer to campus, he said that they'd be releasing video to media. So that's what we were expecting. Mm-hmm. And I think it came pretty pretty late in the evening around like 8 p.m.
1: And then in the days following that first report, we've since received more and more information, so like from the victim's mother, I believe, we we've spoken to, and various people who, who were friends or associates of the victim, did they just get in contact with you, or did you have to go and seek those people out?
3: Yes, I mean, so we, we, we've learned information through, like, a variety of ways, but for the mother interview, I was given her number um, from a friend who was in contact. So I called up the mother, and she was at the hospital, and didn't have a lot of time to talk because she had to, I guess, meet with various officials and psychiatrists and stuff. So she's very busy, but, you know, she took the time to uh, sort of explain what she knew at that point she said there's a history of bipolar disorder in their family and from her experience it it can sort of start to manifest around this age so she's never seen any signs in her son Charles Thomas but you know she said she's sort of been paying close attention because you know around this time it can start to manifest and she said he'd been very busy working on his thesis he had deadlines coming up so she suspected that sort of stress around that Contributed to the episode. Those are sort of the main points. She did question whether the the officers could have restrained him in some other way without firing a bullet. She said she pointed out that one of the officers said he was quote mental in the in the body cam video. So she you know she said one she she wonders if he's mental why why did they have to fire the shot. She was very calm on the phone. It sounded like to me that obviously this was early on. She at that point she had very limited access. Um, to her son because he was in police custody so um, they weren't letting any friends visit and family had limited access.
1: Are there sort of next steps for this story or are we mostly just waiting for for Thomas to be released from the from the hospital?
3: Yeah, I, I don't have the latest condition update unfortunately. We did know that he was in ICU last week uh, at a demonstration. One of his friends said that he had a collapsed lung and I believe a a broken or fractured shoulder. So it, 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 it does sound from all accounts that he's expected to recover but I, I don't think we there's been any information in the past day or so about condition so we'll wait to see there. The Tribune reported from bond court that a judge set bond at $15,000 and with a stipulation of electronic home monitoring. Uh, he's facing multiple felony charges. The other you know the other thing I'm paying attention to is what happens with the school, you know, if if there's felony charges you might imagine that there could be some sort of disciplinary action, so what does the university do? Do they bring a case against him? Does that lead to suspension? Does it lead to expulsion? We have no idea at this point, and the university is not saying. If people have
1: information about this that they want to share, should they email you or contact the Maroon in some way?
3: Yeah, you can reach out to the Maroon, news at chicagomaroon.com is our email, we're always happy to talk to anyone who has information and we also have an anonymous tip line. I guess the other thing that, you know, I think is important to stress here is that we're talking about a human being, a student, Charles Thomas, fourth year, you know, and I, I think a lot of his friends are understandably frustrated that the sort of human side of him is some maybe lacking or missing in, in some of the media coverage. It's been sort of amazing to see students organized on social media, releasing photos to try to sort of humanize him, reshape the narrative. You know, there's video of him laughing, apparently he had sort of just this amazing, he has this sort of amazing laugh that everyone remembers. By all accounts so far, you know, he's a great guy, very kind, very gentle, who, dealing with some mental health issues and, you know, didn't get the help he needed from the university. He was referred off campus by mental health services. So you know he had he had one bad night it's according to his friends, and uh, you know they're all hoping that he can he can move on from this, obviously you know it's a long road ahead with sort of the stigma of mental health issues, so you know i I think it's just important to keep in mind that this is a student someone in our community you know as as we um, you know think about whether the the shooting was justified and you know as, as, as those debates happen online so thanks, Pete
4: yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, My name is Chase Harrison and I'm Vice President for Student Affairs.
5: And you gave some opening remarks at the Zimmer Boyer Forum on Thursday of last week. Can you tell us a little bit about what that event was like to plan and what the event was?
4: Sure. So the event originated in a resolution that I spearheaded on College Council where I served as a third-year rep the year before. Uh, Zimmer had done an interview, I believe, with the Wall Street Journal where they were parsing out his free speech policy. They asked him quickly if Richard Spencer, a very prominent white nationalist and alt-right leader, could come to campus, and he said briefly, that would be allowed.
5: Harrison is referring to a Wall Street Journal business piece by Douglas Belkin, published February twentieth, 2017, entitled, Why the University of Chicago Opposes Trigger Warnings. I want to read you the exchange. The Wall Street Journal asked, if Richard Spencer, who attended the University of Chicago and has become a leading white nationalist, was invited to speak at the university, would you have a problem with that? Zimmer responds, "'Faculty and students invite all sorts of people, and we don't restrict who they invite. I don't invite people. We offer no restrictions to student groups and faculty. What they want to do is hear, discuss, and potentially argue with the people they invite.'" Wall Street Journal responds, "'So, if he was invited to speak there, you'd be okay with him coming.'" Zimmer answers, it would be fine if he came to speak, just like if anyone else came to speak.
4: Um, I felt that because Spencer has really dabbled in the more violent rhetoric that a lot of people consider as in violation of our free speech policy, that it was sort of incumbent upon Zimmer to, be, uh, to elaborate on his stance. Um, and it kind of touched upon this trend I had felt where he had been so vocal in the American news media around free speech, but students hadn't really had a chance to engage with him on this topic. So I wrote a letter that was basically like, I'm not saying I agree or disagree. I just think it'd be great to have a conversation.
5: The Maroon actually ran that letter in March of 2017. Harrison signed on to it with 12 other class reps. You can still find it on our website. So this Um, took a while.
4: It took a really long time. Uh, Yeah, it took a lot of persistence and it got postponed frequently. And so right after I released that letter, if I remember correctly, Zimmer sent an email to the whole student body that basically suggested that he would not have such an event. Um, it felt like sort of an honor to be sub as you would say, <laughs> to the whole campus community. Um, so I actually thought that the event would never happen. Two weeks later, he did an event about free speech at Colgate, uh, where he laid out his sort of thesis on the topic. So I came back to administrators, and I said, look, if he's willing to do such an event at Colgate, why would he not want to do so at UChicago? In fact, it feels like such an event would be really in line with the free speech policy. Um, and so from those meetings, they were like, okay, we can start to ask him and push for a date on the calendar. Uh, sort of summer went by. I kept sending emails frequently to make sure it happened. Um, they came to me to ask if I would be okay with it being Zimmer and Boyer and Axelrod, which was more than my request. Um, and then it was supposed to be in winter and then it got pushed back to spring. And then on Thursday it finally happened.
5: And so you gave some opening remarks. Um, Mm -hmm. what did you talk about? when you preface the event.
4: Sure. I tried to talk about the um, juxtaposition I feel that exists between the way free speech is spoken in the media by figures like Robert Zimmer and the reality of how it actualizes on campus. Um, It's sort of my stance that the problems of free speech are being exaggerated. I think it fits in quite nicely to this narrative that there are these intolerant liberals on college campuses who have these authoritarian tendencies and if we don't stop them, democracy is going to crumble. Um,
5: and that's being exaggerated by whom?
4: Um, I think by mostly conservative news media, but I think indirectly by figures like Robert Zimmer, um, who use a lot of rhetoric as if Chicago was the only place where free speech truly exists. But then incidents like we saw at Berkeley or at Middlebury, where speakers do get shut down or there's perhaps violence, people get hurt. Um, I don't think that there's always a focus on the rationale of the protesters or why they were so passionate. I think it's just this, how could they shut a speaker down if they have a different perspective? But I think there's a lot more nuance to those events that doesn't get reported upon. Of course, because I was introducing the president, I couldn't be maybe as upfront as I wanted to be, but I just wanted to articulate that students are a little Were your remarks
5: approved beforehand? They
4: were, yeah. I had sent them to several administrators. I actually thought they were going to be edited more. They were, they were edited. No, they asked me to like include um, logistical things, okay. but they did not touch the content of the remarks, I which I appreciated. Yeah.
5: And so can you tell me how the event went, in your opinion?
4: I was happy with the way the event went in that it went. I was concerned a couple days before that um, issues on campus that protests would make the event not occur at all. What I found was that students largely operated within our freedom of expression policies so within the room, I thought students asked really wonderful, hard-hitting questions to President Zimmer on a wide variety of topics. We had questions on free speech, on library organization, the business major. Um, I was disappointed in Zimmer, actually, that he did not have full-fledged responses to a lot of student questions. He responded to two of them with, I don't know, or that it would be unreasonable for him to know because he had to deal with so many issues.
5: I mean, and then what? Was there, were there follow-ups? Was it just silence? How do, how does a president of the university say, I don't know?
4: Yeah, there was follow-ups from the questioners, which I was happy about. So one of them was like, well, can you find out and can you work on this? And
5: We'll follow up with Madeline Johnson about that in a
4: moment. Another one of them sort of questioned how it could be that he didn't know because he, or at least his name, had been very involved with the issue. Um, you know, we know that Robert Zimmer is a figurehead. He's a prominent college president, but... These are some of the biggest issues on campus that all students probably have some opinion or knowledge of, and I thought that it was uh, really negligent of him to not respond. And then outside the event, of course, there was this major protest that was really audible inside the event. Um,
5: So I was on the other side of that wall actually covering the protest. What was it like inside?
4: It was a little bit eerie, for sure. Like, you could hear the chants and you could make out what they were saying. Um, At one point, they got quite loud. I think the protesters tried to enter the event.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: But for me, it really spoke to the issue of Robert Zimmer not having done a public event with students in, from my records, five years. The last one I could find was in 2013.
5: Michael Weinrub actually has a different take on that stat, but we'll get to that later.
4: And so there are so many issues that people want to bring to his attention. There are so many people who are not allowed in that room because it was only undergraduates that it's sort of unsurprising that there would be a lot of anger and that it would be a flashpoint for student protests. I think it really highlighted the need for more forms like this.
2: Um,
5: so it took you again going back to the process here you know over a year to get this planned yeah. what was the rationale that you were being told for you know taking this long or delaying the process is it just that Zimmer's a busy man
4: Yeah that was always what it was that the scheduling office couldn't find a time I wonder if that got complicated once they brought Boyer and run in because they were coordinating three schedules but
5: mm-hmm. So the the president if i'm getting this right of yeah. a university that is now famous for its free speech policies, didn't have the time to speak with his students.
4: For an hour, yeah. that And when he did,
5: he couldn't answer some questions that they had.
4: Correct. And that the event started 10 minutes late, and I would say about five, five or six students got their question answered. But there was a longer line.
5: How how full was the room, would you
4: say? The room was not very full, which was surprising to me. I have a lot of thoughts about why that might be. Um, I really thought that students would revel in this opportunity, and there were pretty full RSVPs, but maybe it was the snow, maybe it was having class. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if students aren't interested or students who are passionate maybe felt that their voices would be better used outside of the auditorium than inside of the auditorium.
5: What do you think about that?
4: I find sometimes that there's an incongruency between demands I hear from students and the actions of students. So I hear a lot that students want to meet with administrators whether it be a big figure like Robert Zimmer or more recently members of Student Counseling Service leadership. Student government has held a number of sessions all year with Student Counseling Services leadership and now with Zimmer And at all the events, we just don't get substantial attendance. So there is a real question for me as to, to where's the disconnect there?
6: It is about 11.30 p.m. on Wednesday, May 9th. Lyft's release is happening in about a half hour and I'm standing right outside of Ida Noyes and I'm about to walk in. You can already hear people chanting from here. To this release on Wednesday night to record some audio, and as you just heard, when I walked into Ida Noise, it was like walking into a wall of noise. I couldn't really even tell what everyone was saying. There were hundreds of people all crammed into the lobby. So I just stepped into a side room where it's a little bit quieter. Everybody in the main lobby of IdaNoise is gathered and some people are wearing their scab team shirts and it sounds like they're chanting, Whales aren't fish. Oh, here's a new chant now. I don't know what they're saying. There were a lot of funny chants. I think it's Fish are Friends, Not Food. The next one, people just started chanting nice and giving a thumbs up. There was the classic call your mom and then in an almost perfectly self-aware way they started chanting the words mindless chanting and of course people demanded what they were there for Now, when I got there, B.J. and McLean and a few other teams were already there, and it was loud. But the Ida wasn't even close to full yet. And then Snitchcock showed up. If you hear people chanting Sucks after Snitchcock, don't worry, there was no bad sportsmanship going on. It was Snitchcock team members who were chanting Sucks after their name, as a joke. In fact, they chanted Sucks after any chant, really, like, we want the list sucks. Stuff like that, which wasn't even supposed to make any sense. After Snitchcock got there, another team, I think it was the alumni team, burst in singing the Star-Spangled Banner. And next, I-House came in, whose team name this year is IHOP, or... International House of People Against Acronyms. As they came in, they were chanting the word, pancakes. And finally, the judges arrived. They let us all into the big reception hall in IDA to tell us what was about to happen. But their speaker system wasn't really loud enough to fill the whole room, so I found someone who could explain what was going on. Christina is describing it's the very first event in SCAF. When teams gather at IDA every year for list release, the judges don't just hand out the list. They give everyone a challenge. In past years, they've devised really ridiculous games for the teams during list release. Luckily, this year the task wasn't that difficult. As teams collected their orbs, competitors would run out with parts of the list and rush them over to their team as quickly as possible. Then the team would send someone else in to get the next part. This went on and on until teams got their entire list. As the teams got their list, they rushed off to start Scav. This whole weekend, participants have been racing to complete as many items as possible, to earn as many points as possible. And on Sunday, the judges announced that the winner of the 2018 scav hunt is Snell Hitchcock with Breckenridge in second place. Congratulations to all the teams that participated this year for another successful
0: scav. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been the Maroon Weekly for week 10 of spring quarter. I know I said this earlier, but guys, thank you so much for the past two quarters. The team could not be more ecstatic about how the launch of the podcast division has gone. And I cannot wait for next year to show you guys all the interesting things we have in store. As always, thank you to Ben Kent and the entire Logan Cage staff. Thank you to Aaron Senden and Andrew Dietz for our music. Thank you to Grace Houck, Chase Harrison, Samantha Isla driscoll Miles Burton, Pete Green, Chase Harris. Quinn Kane and all of the people that Quinn spoke to at SCAB for those amazing segments and last but definitely not least thank you to the reason this entire thing has started the podspiration herself Grace Hauk. she will be graduating and moving on without us and we could not have gotten here without her so thank you again so much Grace this is Austin Crystal signing off for the Maroon Weekly for the rest of the academic year I hope you guys have an incredible summer and we'll see you guys next year